The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911. All right, it is 5.06 on the Central Coast. Welcome back to the Dave Congleton Show. It is uh, Thursday, May 20th, 2021. Uh, stick around. Have um, you been in pain lately? Do you go to uh, Lags Medical Center? I, you probably know that they're closed. The, the largest pain management clinic in the county. Uh, Sit Carr reached out to me. He wants to talk about it, so he'll talk about it a little bit later on. Uh, this hour. I want to talk about a brand new book out called At Home in the World, California Women and the Post-War Environmental Movement. I have been reading this book for the last few days. I've got it covered with all sorts of post-it notes. There are a gazillion questions I want to ask the author as we welcome back to this broadcast Dr. Kathleen Cairns. She's a retired lecturer in history and women's studies at Cal Poly. She is the author of uh, two previous books through the University of Nebraska Press. She was a working journalist for years. Uh, This is a book that I cannot say enough things good about. Anyway, uh, Dr. Karen, it's nice to see you again, and congratulations on the book. Well, thank you so much for having me back. If I can say, of the three books that I've read of yours, this is, wow, I think this is your best book. Thank you so much. Very impressive. Appreciate uh, it. But my initial question to you is, uh, since this focuses on women in the post-World War II environmental movement in California, how, how many of these women did you know of before you decided to do this book? I knew of one, uh, Kathleen Goddard-Jones, yeah. who is from San Luis Obispo County. And um, actually, her papers are at Cal, at Cal Poly, which is how I knew about her. Um, I didn't have time for a few years to delve into them, and then by the time I did delve into them, I I was sorry I hadn't done it sooner. She is a phenomenal, was a phenomenal, and phenomenally interesting woman. Um, and when I got through with her papers, I realized that I had I had more than enough for an article, but not enough for a book. Yeah. So I needed to find some other women. Um, who had been involved in the, you know, the, the environmental movement in the early 60s and in early 70s. And I discovered three women in the San Francisco Bay, um, who, or in, in Berkeley, I should say. And they literally single-handedly saved the San Francisco Bay from dumping. Um, a, a, they had dumped garbage and bed springs and dead animals and all kinds of things in the bay over the over the preceding you know several decades and then i found another trio of women in los angeles who were involved in um, saving the santa monica mountains from massive development and all of this was taking place in the early to mid 1960s and so i was trying to find some sort of some sort of a theme some sort some commonality i could find among these women who i should mention were all housewives yeah they were all middle-class housewives, um, all married to successful men who largely, but not entirely, supported their work. And, um, and I just, I was, 
I was absolutely stymied by how they could pull these endeavors off. Um, Kathleen Goddard Jones is best known um, for, by people on the Central Coast uh, for saving the Nipomo Dunes from um, from a nuclear power plant. Yeah, Diablo Canyon was originally supposed to go to the dunes. It was supposed to go to the dunes yeah. originally, and she was an avid hiker and member of the Sierra Club, and it, she just... She, she was so unhappy and upset when she discovered that um, the PG&E had planned to build a power plant there that she just basically, um, you know, went to work. And it took her several years, but she did manage to, to save the dunes. And so this was extraordinary. So it's fascinating to me. You set out curious about one woman, and then you end up with a book about an entire movement. Absolutely. Yeah. And the thing that, that stunned me was the early 60s was sort of on the cusp of women being able to do more things. And, of course, the younger generation would create the feminist movement. But not one of these women was anywhere close to what you would call a feminist. They were housewives, literally housewives. Um, they were very active in their communities. They belonged to the League of Women Voters, and they belonged to you know, hiking clubs, and they were active in university uh, university organizations, um, the American Association of University Women they were involved in. So they they were they were very active in the community, but they didn't focus or turn their focus to the environment um, until the early '60s. Yeah, and I offer you this perspective. You know a little bit about my story. I came out here from the Midwest in 1987, and in the '80s and the '90s, we think of California as pristine mm -hmm. and very committed to the environment, and you just assume. Oh, it's always been like this. And then you read a book like yours, and you realize, no, California became the way that it is because of the work of the environmental movement. Mm -hmm. And what's clear from your book, that a lot of that was driven by these women. Absolutely. Um, Calif the problem with California was that it grew exponentially, literally from the moment it became a state. Yeah. And so, you know, for the 19th century, it was still you know, rel relatively, um, you know, not, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say bucolic, but not, but rural and not urban. And then in the late 19th century and early 20th century, it began to grow. And therefore, you had organizations like the Sierra Club, which um, one of their very first campaigns was to stop the damming and flooding of Hetch Hetchy in the, yeah. um, in the Yosemite Valley to provide water for, for San Francisco. So that was basically the environmental or the conservation movement, I should say, in the in the late 19th and early 20th century. But mostly male. Mostly male, absolutely. The Sierra Club was started in 1892 by um, by uh, many men, two, more than 200 men, and about five women. Uh, it was headquartered in San Francisco. It still is um, is headquartered there. And so most of their um, the Sierra Club's activities and focus was on preserving wilderness area. And um, they didn't really move away from that until, as I said, a little, a little bit in, early in the 20th century, they began to move away from it. But they didn't really see, see how they could get involved in bigger campaigns that were necessitated with, with the massive industrialization sur surrounding World War II. Are we un unfair, <clears throat> as, a, as the historian in you, when we look back and we kind of judge these organizations like the Sierra Club by today's standards? Because I'm, I'm kind of ambivalent after reading your book, Doctor, about uh, the Sierra Club. I, I, I read this, I'm like, well, why didn't they do more? Why didn't they get more involved here? Am I being unfair? Am I not understanding the times? Um. 
well, you're not being unfair, but I think I think it is unfair to to take our standards and what what we do today and think today and go back, you know, more than a hundred years, um, because re- really, um, they were focused on saving wilderness and on hiking, wilderness, backpacking. Um, one of the major campaigns that the um, that the Sierra Club was involved in in the early 1950s was an effort to stop a dam um, in Dinosaur National Monument, and um, and Kathleen Goddard Jones. She did, yeah, she was involved in that. Was absolutely. involved in it, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And so, and so I, um, and so I think it is unfair to look at the Sierra Club because you know what they what they were doing. I mean, it's like anybody. You start doing something, and then someone says, "Well, you need to be over here." And you're you're sort of thinking, well, why should I do that? I've been doing this for for you know for fifty years or not personally a hundred years, but you know I've been doing this for a long time, and now somebody thinks I should I should just because there are other problems I should expand outward, and I think it it's just it's just sort of natural. The book is At Home in the World: California Women and the Postwar Environmental Movement. My guest is the author, Dr. Kathleen Karens. You can get this book however you get books. If you don't mind, I'd like to read a paragraph from the book. This is early on. I just like the writing here. Uh, you write: New problems required new strategies and voices. Mired in the past, many male leaders seem paralyzed uncertain how to confront the myriad challenges. Women stepped into the breach, in the process moving beyond established organizations to forge a new kind of grassroots community activism. It's not too far-fetched to view them as midwives of modern environmentalism, in some cases working in opposition to or with limited assistance, at least initially, from powerful men. How are women different than, and it's a broad question, but how are women different than men in terms of approaching activism based on your research? Well, um, actually, they, they didn't differ that much from men initially. Um, and I'm going to move away from Kathleen Goddard-Jones yeah. for a few minutes and talk about the women of Save the San Francisco Bay. Sure. Um, it wasn't hard to notice the bay becoming a dumping ground because it smelled so bad. And one of the women who was who was a leader in Save the San Francisco Bay was Kathy. It was Kath, Catherine Kerr, who was the wife of Clark, Clark Kerr, Kerr yeah. who was the president of the University of California system. And she would cross the bay, uh, the Bay Bridge, many times a week, going to pick up you know people, respected people who came to visit Berkeley. And um, when they were coming back across the the the, the um, the Bay Bridge, um, people would say, what does that smell? And she would say, I'm so sorry, but the Bay smells. And so it, it got so bad that um, that she and a couple of her friends decided that they would put together an organization and try to, um, and try to do something about it. So they went to the Sierra Club because the Sierra Club was the most respected and the most significant um, environmental organization in uh in actually in the united states and so they asked the sierra club um leaders if they would help out and they said no we're sorry we're too busy we can't we can't do this we're involved in many other campaigns that we we're doing working on ourselves but they did give the women their uh their mailing list and so uh and so the women used that mailing list as the beginning of the save the bay organization 
um, I should say that they sent out 700, um, 700 solicitations for people to join for a dollar apiece, and they got six, more than 600 responses. So clearly this, they had struck a chord. Um, so they started on their own, but over time the Sierra Club did come back and help them to some extent with fundraising and um, with sort of su- suggestions for strategies but the but the women basically by this time didn't really need them so much. Yeah. So um, yeah. All right, we will pick up the conversation and uh, talk more. The book is at Home in the World: California Women at the Postwar Environmental Movement. Dr. Kathleen Karen's on this broadcast. I'm Dave Congleton. We're live. We're local. This is Hometown Radio. You have landed on the Dave Congleton Show, always your hometown radio talk show. The book is At Home in the World, California Women and the Post-War Environmental Movement. Uh, Dr. Kathleen Karens is my guest. She spells her last name C-A-I-R-N-S. You can get this book however you get books. I would recommend this book, uh, particularly for anyone who enjoys modern California history, because it's not... It's not just about environmental issues, nothing wrong with that, but you really, I mean, you talk about the do-nights and you talk about the development of Los Angeles and traffic. Any number of people would enjoy this book. Having said that, Professor, as we continue our conversation, I really want to spend some time talking about Kathleen Goddard-Jones because there is that local connection. Mm -hmm. She is the woman who primarily made Diablo Canyon not come on the do. I'm trying to imagine what that would be like the Oceano Napomo Dunes with a nuclear power plant there right now. And yeah. why did they go to Diablo Canyon? Because of this woman. Absolutely. And and thanks to your book, I had no idea of the amazing life she led. Wow. She was 94 quite, years. Quite an interesting woman. Um, Kathleen Goddard-Jones, I'll give you a little mini bio. Yeah. Um, was born in Sacramento, but she was raised in uh, Santa Barbara, and um, and she was was from from the beginning basically of her life a person who loved adventure, and she loved hiking, and she loved traveling. When she was 19 years old, uh, two older women friends invited her to travel to Europe with them, um, and she just threw threw away threw up everything and said, yeah. "Oh, I'll go with you." Yeah. So she took a ship across the ocean, and she wrote um, she wrote lots of lots of notes about her experiences. And apparently, at some point, her mother was very unhappy with her because she was writing back about how she, how she was drinking and how everybody smoked there, and how <laughs> she stayed up until four in the morning and she saw prostitutes. and And her mother apparently wanted her to come back right away, and she stayed for three months. And she came back, and then she enrolled in uh, Mills College in Oakland, where she began to uh, to hang out with um, a man named Cedric Wright, which was uh, who was a very um, very prominent uh, member of the Sierra Club. Well, and he was like ten years older. And he, he, was, he wanted to marry her. He, he was ten years older, and yeah. he wanted to marry her. And she would. Yeah. And she said, "No, thank you. You know, you're ten years older." But she also at this time, and this must, this was probably around, uh, in the mid 1920s, um, she, mid to late 1920s, she also met Ansel Adams, who became a lifelong friend of hers. And, uh, so, so Wright asked her to marry him, and she said no. 
And several weeks later, she was she happened to be in a rug store in San Francisco, and she met an Iranian pilot, um, some a sexy guy who had flown for for the Allies in World War One, and um, and so she started hanging out with him. He asked her to marry him, and she said yes. So immediately they flew to Iran, and and then they and then she lived in Burma and India and Iran, and they she lived in several places, and she was in her early twenties. Fairly quickly, you know, the bloom, the bloom, you know, was off that rose. And so yeah. she came back to America and she settled for a while in New York. She got divorced and she went to work for a radio station. I want to say NBC, but I, I can't remember right now. I think it was NBC. And uh, and she started as in, in a steno pool. And then she ended up um, working for a variety of talk shows and being in the publicity department, which which really, really served her well for her activism later. So she stayed there for several years, and then she moved back to, to her family's, um, to, to where her family was in Santa Barbara. And there she met a um, her second husband, a man named Duncan Johnson, who um, who owned an almond, lots of almond groves in Paso Robles. And so they moved to Paso Robles, and they settled in pa- in there. By this time, she was in her late 30s, and he was in his mid 40s. And so, for some unknown reason, they decided to adopt five children. Of course. And why not, right? Yeah. And so in a period of three or four years, they adopted five children. They moved into this big Victorian house, and um, and then she joined the Sierra Club, and she began to hike. Um, I should say that at this point in history, you had to have sponsors to um, to join the Sierra Club, and, she, and Cedric Wright, who was still her friend, um, sponsored her. The people coming in and out of her life throughout her life. Yes, absolutely. And so right. she began to um, to hike and, and to go on these backpack wilderness wilderness trips. But the point I want to make established before we go to news in less than a minute here is the idea that it was in 1961, living in Paso Robles is when she first set foot on the Napomo Oceano Dunes because her daughter... Mm-hmm wanted was it her birthday it was her 16th birthday and okay where do you want to go today and the daughter took her to see the dunes absolutely and wow and this this was a, a life-altering event seeing these dunes she would have been 52 she was i'm not sure how old she was it would have been yes she would have yeah. been in her early 50s absolutely yeah. Yeah. and she fell in love with the dunes she had no idea about the colorful history of the dunes um, but she absolutely fell in love with them, and she every every extra minute that she had, she drove, or extra day she had, she drove down to the dunes, and she would hike, and she would hike six or seven miles by herself um, on these dunes. So that one trip, the one from trip her daughter, from her daughter, changed everything absolutely. in this community. Absolutely. We'll pick up that story, talk more about this wonderful book. It's called At Home in the World, California Women in the Post-War Environmental Movement. My guest is Dr. Kathleen Karens. We're live. We're local. You're listening to The Dave Congleton Show. have landed on the Dave Congleton Show, always your hometown radio talk show. Sid Carr joins us at 5.05. We'll talk about pain management and how the uh, largest pain management clinic in the county uh, suddenly abruptly closed down. What are people to do? Uh, let's talk about that. 
Uh, this hour, we're talking about the role women played specifically in the state of California in the post-war environmental movement. It is actually a pretty impressive record, a very impressive book. It call, it's called At Home in the World. You get it however you get books. Uh, my guest is a retired Cal Poly lecturer, Dr. Kathleen Kerens. Before the break, we're talking about the amazing uh, Kathleen Goddard-Jones, who was Jackson, and then she was uh, she didn't become Jones until the early 70s, something else they didn't know. So her her teenage daughter on her birthday, take me to the dunes. And that changed everything in 1961. Absolutely. One of the things that, one of the many things that surprised me about the book is how much the people of San Luis Obispo County wanted a nuclear power plant. They wanted that. Well, they did. And um, partly, I think, it was because um, PG&E sold this um, because they wanted to build power plants up and down the coast of California. They sold this as good for the community, uh, tax, uh, tax base um, for the schools, uh, good for business. And so um, San Luis Obispo County was still relatively um, rural at this point, right. not entirely, but, but somewhat rural. And so the, the tax base, you know, they, they saw that. And um, the first piece of evidence about that was when Kathleen Goddard Jones was, was walking on the dunes one day and she, and she stopped for lunch at a cafe, um, near the dunes. And she said to the proprietor, wouldn't it be great if they turned the dunes into a park? And he said, it would ruin my business. Oh, this is the guy with Oceano. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that kind of captures the mentality. Yes, and people were absolutely furious when she started her campaign. Let's talk to about that. Save them. Yeah. So she she falls in love with the dunes. Mm-hmm. She's found paradise. She's been all over the world, and then she discovers that they're going to bring in a nuclear power plant. Yes, and this was early 1963, and she read a little tiny blurb in in a newspaper about how PG and E had planned to build a nuclear power plant here. Um, I should say that they had tried to build one earlier in Bodega Bay, but mm-hmm. they, they've discovered an earthquake fault there, and so they'd abandoned that. And so the, their second choice was um, was the dunes, Napomo Dunes. Um, Union Oil owned it, and so they had they had they had purchased the land from Union Oil, and it, it seemed to be at that point in early 1963 a pretty done deal. So, but Kathleen Goddard Jones, amazingly, um, for a middle-aged woman basically said, no way. And so she began to put notices on bulletin boards at Cal Poly about hikes. Um, she put little items in the new, in five local newspapers and radio stations. She would take, you know, information to them and the one television station. And, and she just began this relentless campaign, uh, to save the dunes. And yeah, no, I, I was just going to throw in the fact it's my impression her husband was kind of on the fence about this. Well, her husband was a businessman. Yeah. And so he 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 needed he wanted customers and yeah. he wanted to fit into the community. And he was sort of a leader um, in the community. And uh, and he began to get a little bit nervous when she started this out. Um, one of the more interesting things I found is that is that she began to get phone calls all night long you yeah. know, back in the day when you didn't have, you know, when you, when you didn't have enlisted numbers, everybody had your phone number. And at one point at two in the morning after they'd gotten several phone calls, he said, can't you just stop this? You know, please, you know, this is, this is terrible. You know, I can't hold my head up in this town. 
And so she basically just said, well, too bad. Um, so anyway, so she kept going. And she found at one point in mid-1963 that PG&E was sending some um, some representatives to a business lunch in San Luis Obispo or, or possibly Rio Grande. And so she fa- she made her she put herself on the agenda, and so she went to this meeting and and she met with these two representatives of PG and E, and she invited them to hike on the dunes with her. And their reaction, uh, I don't have the page in front of me, but is like, oh, this this little woman. Yes, what, what can she do? Yeah. You know, she's a, she's she's a little house a little housewife, and she was sort of a small woman. You know, she's just this this, this middle aged housewife. What can she do? This was their first reaction to her. And then after this lunch and after the, she, had, she invited them to a hike on the dunes where they failed to bring sunscreen, um, they failed to bring water, uh, they wore tennis shoes, uh, and they just wore slacks to hike seven miles on the dunes. And so um, at the end of this, they, they, they took her, they said they would take her to lunch, and she said, no, I'll take myself, but I'll go with you. And so they were sitting, eating, and at the end of it, as they were driving back to San Francisco, they turned to each other and said, she's one tough cookie. (laughs) We're going to have a lot of trouble with her. And they did. And they did, absolutely. Also, where is the Sierra Club at this point? Because one would assume that they would be adamant and get in there and join her and support her in terms of fighting a nuclear power plant. Well... (laughs) That's a sort of complicated story because nobody really knew much about nuclear power. And and the Sierra Club basically in 1963 had didn't have a position on nuclear power. Um, it wasn't something they had been forced to deal with. And she forced them to deal with this. And so they were really torn. Um, some of the members or some of the leaders in the Sierra Club decided they didn't want a power plant. Others said they did, but they weren't quite sure. I mean, this was a new area. This is one of the one of the things I talk about in the book. One of the problems with established uh, conservation movements at the time is that they had no experience in these kinds of things. They had a they had an agenda, you know. They did a s- certain number of things, but this wasn't in their wheelhouse, and so this was something that she'd forced on them. Hey, could you tell a story about the the ride home with Lee Wilson one night? And yeah, the, and, the, and the falling out they had. And who was Lee Wilson? Lee Wilson was um, a friend of hers for for some time. Um, he was also a member of of her um, her chapter of, of the Sierra Club, and um, and they hiked together on the dunes. and And she, he was interested in saving uh, Lopez Canyon, and so uh, and so they hiked in Lopez Canyon. And uh, but she was so enthusiastic about the dunes that she wouldn't stop talking about it. And so he, I, I think, I, I inferred, I'm not absolutely sure, that he was fearful that she was so assertive about the dunes that that everything was going to go to the dunes and nothing would go to the to Lopez Canyon. And so they were driving home from a hike, I think it was in Lopez Canyon, and she started waxing poetically about the dunes, and he sort of erupted at her and said, you just need to stop with this. Um, and one of the more interesting things is he said you should go back to your knitting, and <laughs> and I realized that probably he wasn't the only one who thought that, <laughs> and probably 
he he wasn't the only one who thought that or men in general were sort of curious about why all these women were out there trying to mm. save things in the 1960s. Well, and, and talk about that, please. How did the men in the environmental movement react to this wave of women coming on board? Well, they didn't really know how to, rea- how to react at first. Um, ultimately, in some cases that save the San Francisco Bay movement um, and the save the Santa, Santa Monica Mountains movement, they worked pretty closely with the women. Uh, at, begin- at the beginning, they just weren't quite sure, you know, what was happening. And they, in, it, this just took them outside of the kinds of things they were focused on. Um, but, but as far as the, um, as the dunes were concerned, they, at the beginning, like I said, they didn't know how they felt about nuclear power and she was pushing them to, and she was pushing them to take a stand on it. And essentially what happened was when, when PG&E, and it was due to Kathleen Goddard Jones, relentless, relentless, you know, hammering away at it, they asked her, in a casual comment, well, where would you put the dunes if you could put them someplace else? Where would you put the plants? Where would you put the, yeah, where would you, I'm sorry, where would you put the plant? Sorry. Where would you put the nuclear power plant if it wasn't at the dunes? Well, she took this as an opening, massive opening, and she said, well, there's this little, there's this place about 25 or 30 miles north of the dunes, and it's a slot canyon, uh, Diablo, Diablo. And and she she'd only been to the mouth of the canyon. She just looked at it casually, and so basically they they went and looked at it. PG and E looked at it and said, "Well, this might work." And so then, the Sierra Club actually had to do something. This is when they had to actually grapple with nuclear power, because um, this meant that they actually had to had to vote on whether they 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 would okay this, as opposed to. Um, to the dunes. And so then they had to really focus on how they felt um, and they, how they felt about this canyon. Was it really a place that they, that they wanted this, that they would approve of? And so um, in 1965, and from 1965 until 1968, the Sierra Club basically, um, the, the larger organization basically imploded over this. Um, half of the half of the the leaders said, "Yeah, this is this is fine." The other half basically said, "No, it's not fine." Um, at, at that point, it was nineteen sixty eight, I think, and David Brower had been um, executive director of the Sierra Club for about fifteen years or sixteen years, and he was extremely um, significant in the in the overall environmental movement. And he decided that he was utterly opposed to nuclear power. And uh, he actually he actually left left the organization and created his own organization called Save the Save the Earth, um, which was uh, dedicated to to stopping nuclear power. If you're just joining us, uh, my guest is retired Cal Poly lecturer, historian, and author Dr. Kathleen Karen's new book is called At Home <laughs> in the World. California Women and the Post-War Environmental Movement. I highly recommend this book. You can get this book wherever you get books. On the Stolberg Law KVC text line, a listener is asking where in the dunes were they going to put the power plant? Um, the Nipomo dunes, um, it was in, in southern uh, San Luis Obispo County. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it was very near Oceano dunes where, where the off-road vehicles are. Um, it's an 18-mile strip of land 
Um, and it was a narrow strip of land. It wasn't, you know, wide. Um, but it was it was basically the very, very southern part of San Luis Obispo County is where they were going to put it. And instead that land ended up being sold to the state. Um, yes, the state bought part of it. Um, part of it is, is part of the National Wildlife Refuge. Um, San Luis Obispo County Conservation, um, I've forgotten the actual name of the organization, um, has part of it as well, or, or at least um, um, uh, works works with it as well. Works with them as well. Yeah. But I just stress as uh, we get ready for the break here, the idea that this one person, mm-hmm. I just love the story. The one person, based on a birthday walk for her daughter, discovers the dunes and she leads the fight to keep them preserved and open. Mm-hmm. And this huge corporation moves their power plant further north. Because this woman got involved. Absolutely. And that, that was pretty extraordinary. And it was sort of an offhand comment that, that one of them made. You know, where would you put the power plant if you could put it there? And that, w- that was not something you said to Kathleen Goddard-Jones because she would not ever. It was like a dog with a bone by that point. We'll come back for a final segment. I'm Dave Congleton on AM 920 FM 96.5 News Talk KVEC. We could probably do an entire four-hour show on uh, this book. We're only kind of skimming the surface. Uh, At Home in the World, uh, California Women and the Post-War Environmental Movement, we are in conversation with Dr. Kathleen Cairns. And I don't mean to make the whole conversation about uh, Kathleen Goddard-Jones, but she is such a fascinating character. And and yet, as uh, we're back with you, when the protests come against Diablo, she's not involved at all. No, and I should probably um, finish a comment that that I should have I should have finished with the with the caller. Um, Oso Flaco Lake is the entry point to the dunes, the major entry point to the dunes, and you walk around the lake and over a little bridge, and then you right. go out to the dunes. Beautiful so, spot. Beautiful spot. So that's if you want to see the dunes, you want to you want to go there. That's the best best place to go. Is that where they were going to put the reactor? Is that close? Yes, that was that was near where they were going to put the reactor. So it's like right on the San Luis Obispo Santa Barbara County border. Yes, yes, absolutely. Wow. So yeah. so. Uh, Goddard Jones didn't get involved with the protests. Well, she, she w- moved away. She didn't um, because by that point she was involved in the effort to get park status um, for the dunes. And this was also a difficult process, which took several years. Um, this, in 1964, there was a ballot measure which raised $150 million for parks um, up and down the state. And... Um, but the problem was that each county had to come up with a list of top of the top choices for parks. And my guess is, even though I'm just inferring this, um, county people were so mad at her that they made they, they put they, they put um, the dunes really far down on the list. Hmm. But then the state came along and raised you know made it put it higher. So she was mostly focused on that. How is, she, um, how is she regarded today? What's her legacy? Well, her legacy is, she still is amazing. Con- is she still controversial? I don't think anybody knows who she is. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I mean, I don't think people remember her so much, except for people who were act- young activists, maybe at that particular time. And most of the friends that she had in the environmental movement in um, San Luis Obispo County are gone. So um, I just think that people don't remember her, which is, which, which is really sad. 
Um, she was a force of nature, and she was just this small, red-headed, freckled woman that if you saw her walking down the street, you wouldn't even look twice at her. And yet she was just a force of nature. I, I told you when you arrived here that she would have been alive for the first eight years of my show. Oh, and right. Bill, and Bill Deneen was a regular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I believe, I believe she may have called in one time when he was on the show. But that's the closest I came to right. her. And I always knew... The story, but until I have read your book, I didn't get the complete picture, and now I'm truly impressed. Yeah, yeah, she be. She is something else. She was something else, but so were the rest of these women. Absolutely. Um, they basically, I mean, and as, as I explain in the book, however, um, they were able to do this because they had money, they had connections, they had husbands who generally were, were supportive of them, um, one woman who participated in several Bay Area um, movements had a husband who was a lawyer, and he provided free legal advice to every organization that she was involved in. And so a lot of these people, you know, they had they had household help. I mean, it wasn't, you know, so they could do these kinds of things. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the um, influence of Rachel Car- Carson and her book Silent Spring? Because that would have been early 60, 1962. Mm-hmm. 1962. Um, and that's a great question because it was right about the same time. Um, it's hard to overstate the significance of her book. Um, although some of these people were involved in movements before her. And, and she didn't get involved in grassroots organizing, obviously. She was a scientist and a writer. But she, she was extraordinarily significant because she was nationally known um she had written two or three books about the ocean before this the you know the sea uh and they were uniformly um lauded and enthusiastically received by reviewers and the public and politicians and then she sets out to write this book about pesticides and um and the situation changes somewhat um she is Nobody knows what she's actually writing when she's writing this book, but what she's really writing about is how pesticides are political and how uh, how businesses, you know, um, industries creating these pesticides are selling them to the public, um, arguing that, 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 they're, that they're beneficial, particularly DDT. Yeah. And Congress is supporting this and everybody's supporting this and that they're not looking at the dangers of DDT. And so this book that she, if anybody hasn't for people who have read this book, they already know, but it's it's about the dangers of DDT and, and how and it gets she in, died 2 years after the book. She did, I think. Yeah, 1964. Yeah. But so she hmm. is no longer in 1962 when this book comes out, she's no longer this golden woman, you know, who writes about the sea. She's a communist. Um, she's not only a communist, but she's overly emotional. And I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition, juxtaposition being an overly emotional communist. But so she got a lot of flack for this. Um, but people start to read this book and, and they're beginning to look at, at, at things like, like pesticides and, and how, how these companies that create these things basically can, can just have carte blanche. And uh, so she's she's extremely extremely. One of the things I may have been able to appreciate about this book is the fact sitting in this chair for almost thirty years, I have interviewed activists from all over the spectrum, and many of them are women. And so, 
this book is a reminder of, at least in terms of the environmental movement, what it was like in the early days when it wouldn't have been as common for women to be in the forefront. Absolutely. Um, And the interesting thing is none of the women I write about, not one of them, was ever involved in anything like this before. Um, And I didn't talk about this, but the one, one of the, the women I, the one of the groups I look at just briefly is something called Stamp Out Smog Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. And smog began to be a really serious issue in Los Angeles during World War II. And, um, and so by 1959, you know, five months of the year, it's just, you can hardly see the mountains, you know, behind your house. Yeah. But as you point out, and you're going to have to come back, there are consequences to the environmental movement because, mm-hmm. all right, uh, we did this, but now as a result, uh, we don't have enough low cost housing. Absolutely. Right. And so there's a trade off to some of this. There's stuff. a trade off to everything. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the last chapter in my book is about, is about, um, women of color who um, who piggybacked onto this movement because the, these middle-class women paid no attention um, to women of color or communities of color and, and what was happening in their communities. And so they also, they, so women basically created the movement that came afterwards, which is, which is the, environmental, or the environmental justice movement. The book is At Home in the World, California Women, and the post-war environmental movement, Kathleen Karen, C-A-I-R-N-S, is the author. You can get this book however you get books, but I strongly encourage you to get it. Uh, Dr. Karen, thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much. I give you about 30 seconds for a final thought. Um, well, my final thought is that, um, that California uh, is pretty amazing because California was really at the center of this. And if you think of all the other states that had issues um, at this particular point in time, I mean, every state had serious issues, but California becomes the center of the environmental movement. And I would argue that these women basically created the modern, invent, modern environmental movement. Yeah. Um, so, yes, hats right. off to them. Congratulations on the book, and thanks for writing it. Well, thank you. Off we go. We've got news and traffic and weather. Here comes the 5 o'clock hour. Sid Carr is in the house. You're listening to The Dave Congleton Show. The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kbec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911.